It's time for our regular segment where we check in with Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers, legally speaking on CFAX 1070. Michael, good morning. How are you? Good morning. Uh, great to be here. I, I can't complain at all. One of the legal um, concepts that I've always found fascinating is the idea that a corporation can be, in some respects, a person. The idea of corporate personhood and what rights that legal entity that really only exists as an idea should and should not enjoy. Uh, interesting ruling from the Supreme Court of Canada today with respect to cruel and unusual punishment. Yes, indeed. So you're quite right. A corporation for many purposes is treated like a legal person, like a corporation could, for example, uh, enter into a contract, right? If you're uh, agreeing to buy a uh, uh, piece of electronics from some big company, you're not contracting with the uh, you know, president of the company, you're contracting with the company, right? Yes. Com- yes. Companies can enter into contracts, they can own property, you can sue them, they can be sued, right? So they have... Uh, a legal existence, which in some respects is like what a person could do, uh, carrying out those things. But when you get around the margins, how far does that actually extend? Uh, and the case that just came out from the Supreme Court of Canada uh, originated in Quebec. Uh, and the fact pattern was that a, a small corporation there um, apparently did some construction work without a license. They're quite strict about that, it would seem, in Quebec. The Quebec Building Act uh, sets out a minimum fine as a punishment uh, for a corporation that engages in construction work without the required license. And uh, so, uh, in this case, this uh, little corporation was fined something north of $30,000. And the corporation made the argument, hey, this is cruel and unusual punishment, contrary to Section 12 of the Charter, which prohibits somebody from being subject to uh, punishment, which would be cruel and unusual treatment or punishment. Um, and so there were differing views by different judges in Quebec as the thing sort of wound its way through the system about whether that particular protection, that constitutional protection to be free from cruel and unusual treatment or punishment, does that protection apply to a corporation? Because some charter rights do apply to a corporation, but mm. others don't. So, for example, the Section 8 protection against unreasonable search and seizure mm-hmm. does apply to a corporation, right? You, you need a search warrant before you can, uh, if you're the police, kick the door down of a company and rummage around <laughs> for records, for example. Indeed, right? and that's the way it should be. Right. So that, that right, unreasonable search and seizure, does apply to a corporation, right? Uh, some other rights have been found to apply to a corporation, including the right to have a trial within a reasonable period of time, right? If you charge a corporate entity with some offense, you have to have the trial within a reasonable period of time. You can't just drag your feet endlessly, so that right applies to a corporation as well. Mm-hmm. However, other ones, there's a, 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 a constitutional right under Section 7 to life, liberty, and security of the person. Yes. That does not apply to corporations. Hmm. So some charter rights do, some don't. And so this case uh, had to decide... Uh, do corporations enjoy that protection to be free from cruel and unusual treatment or punishment? Uh, and we have an answer to that today, and the answer is no. <laughs> uh, the, okay. Yeah, the, uh, you, you can be as cruel as you like to a, a corporation. Uh, and part of that was the Supreme Court of Canada analyzing, well, what, what's really being talked about using that language, cruel and unusual treatment or punishment? 
and there was certainly focus on that concept of cruelness, right? And the idea that, look, you can't be cruel to a legal entity. It's not a human being. It's not a person. Uh, and the court focused on things like, you know, what's the purpose of the Section 12 of the Charter? And it's an, an important section that's actually gotten a fair bit of use uh, lately hmm. uh, because uh, under the uh, conservative, previous conservative uh, government federally, they created a whole number of um, mandatory minimum sentences. Yes. Uh, and the challenge with those, of course, is when you come up with the idea of a mandatory minimum sentence for something that sounds like some terrible crime, everyone pictures some, you know, ogreish person that we need to protect ourselves from. Yes. But human affairs are endlessly complicated, right? Yes. And inevitably, with many of those things, you wind up capturing people that had nowhere near the level of moral culpability that we would have had in mind when you think, you know, is it a good idea to have a mandatory minimum punishment for this, yeah. right? You just wind up capturing people. You're like, oh, my goodness, we didn't mean the single mother who, you know, had the uh, whatever, you know, uh, handgun in her drawer that was left by her, you know, <laughs> uh, grandfather or something. That's not what we meant by, uh, you know, having a, a loaded handgun, for example, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I remember in Victoria a number of years ago, uh, there were mandatory minimum penalties in place at the time, and there's still some involving things like possessing a loaded handgun, hmm. right, or, or one that has readily accessible ammunition. And I recall watching this fellow come into uh, courtroom 101, the sort of remand uh, court, and he was a World War II veteran yes. uh, coming in with a cane and medals all over. He came in with his... Uh, um, jacket and medals displayed, and what he had was a Luger. He'd taken oh, I was just going to say, officer. is this the Luger case? Yeah. Right. And so nobody had that in mind, right? No. When you sort of, you, you picture some gang member that you have to stop. You don't picture we're going to send the 89-year-old uh, World War II veteran to some mandatory minimum jail sentence over the Luger he took from the German officer during second, the Second World War. That's just not what we envisioned. So this section of the Charter against cruel and unusual uh, treatment of punishment has been used quite frequently when the court has been uh, dealing with, you know, are these various mandatory minimum penalties permissible? Yes. And many of them, sort of one after the next, once they get examined, uh, have been found to be unconstitutional. There's a broad trend in that regard, and a good one, uh, I must say. Uh, the other uh, practical problem with mandatory minimum penalties is that they produce things like completely unnecessary trials where cases otherwise could have resolved, you know, if somebody's acting for the, uh, you know, for example, the military veteran that I've just described, yes. if you're facing a mandatory two-year prison sentence, well, you have to no, fight that. Yeah. You have to fight that because yeah. that's just an outrageous outcome. And so yeah. the thing just goes to trial when otherwise everyone might agree, well, we should probably take the bullets away, <laughs> make the gun safe or something. And you know, carry on. But so they have that adverse effect as well. So the section's been used a lot lately. But the Supreme Court of Canada, in analyzing the section, found that, you know, the, the purpose of that is to deal with concepts like, you know, human dignity yes. and sort of, you know, how it's an indignity to, you know, impose cruel punishment on somebody that's, you know, completely uh, excessive. Uh, and the uh, all of the judges, although they give, they were the competing sets of reasons uh, concluded that that concept just doesn't uh, get purchased with a 
legal entity like a corporation. You just can't be cruel to a legal entity. Uh, however, we do it. We do attach other protections, like you know, you've got to get the trial on at a reasonable time, and no, you just can't kick the door in of any company and rummage around in their uh, rummage around in its records or something without getting a warrant. So. Um, we've got some clarity there, uh, and uh, you can uh, feel free to be as cruel as you like to a corporation. Just make sure you've got that search for it and get the trial out in time. I was going to say, because if you commit a tort against them, their corporate litigators will probably be serving you in short order. Indeed. <laughs> uh, an unsuccessful application for an annulment in our next case. Yes, indeed. Uh, so we actually, a few weeks ago, talked about a, a case where there was a successful application for an annulment, uh, where the couple was unable to, uh, despite many efforts, consummate uh, the marriage. Uh, maybe the couple in this case thought, oh, this looks like a good uh, good way to go. But the fact pattern was this couple uh, had a marriage ceremony, mm-hmm. uh, and then they and their family uh, went to a park uh, to take wedding photographs. Yes. Uh, and apparently an enormous argument broke out at the park between family members uh, and the uh, recently married bride uh, just, uh, said that uh, she did not wish for the marriage to continue and left. <laughs> oh, no. And that was, that uh, was the family end of the law. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> uh, so the, uh, that was the end of the marriage. Uh, and so this former couple applied for what's called a desk order. And a desk order is an application to a, um, uh, to a judge for uh, some remedy that the judge is permitted to grant, mm-hmm. typically where there really isn't the parties are really in agreement here. Like both of these people, that was the end of the marriage, uh, they both applied for an annulment. <laughs> I just, how could they both decide that's the end of the marriage? Oh, we're married. Isn't this great? Let's go take some pictures of the park. Oh, an argument. Okay, maybe we aren't married anymore. Eh, that's the end of it. <laughs> oh. So they asked for this thing. Yeah. Uh, and their reason for asking for it, or one of their justifications for asking for it, was something that the judge uh, spoke about as being sort of a common misconception. And the misconception is this. Uh, the fact that you haven't consummated a marriage doesn't is not sufficient to get an annulment. Hmm. Um, there has to be more than that, uh, and uh, the more than that uh, would require not simply evidence that you know they hadn't consummated the marriage since the ceremony. That was common ground. Both of these people agreed that that hadn't happened on the way to the park, uh, but in order to get an annulment, uh, there needs to be evidence that. They were incapable of doing so, not simply that they had not done so since the marriage ceremony took place. Um, And because there was no evidence that they were incapable of consummating it, simply that they had not consummated it before the enormous argument broke out at the park, the judge concluded that there is no basis for an annulment and there is a presumption uh, that there is a uh, valid marriage uh, unless there's some uh, evidence that one of the uh, requirements for a marriage uh, hasn't been uh, met. And there just wasn't evidence from either of them that that hadn't been so. It was simply, we had the ceremony, uh, that we went to the park, we had the argument, we hadn't consummated it, and so we both want an annulment, it's over. Uh, and they did not get one. Hmm. Um, and so, uh, you know, the uh, moral of the story is uh, it doesn't take much, and there's a strong presumption you are married, Interestingly, it caused me to look at that reference in the decision about the fact that they had uh, the judge said the evidence was that the 
they had complied with the formal requirements of the Marriage Act. That's an interesting thing. Yeah. So I mean, have a look at, you know, what kind of things might you get wrong to not comply with the formal requirements of the Marriage Act? Yeah. One of the interesting ones here that uh, struck me was Section 35 of the Marriage Act in British Columbia. That section actually creates an offense uh, for somebody to issue a marriage license or to uh, perform a marriage uh, where the uh, person, one of the individuals is impaired by drugs or alcohol. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, or, uh, or is uh, uh, there's some other mental incapacity to do it. So when I saw Section 35, it caused me to think, you better not have too much to drink before that marriage ceremony, lest you put everyone at risk of committing an offense who's uh, engaged in that uh, process. But Although it says that they're liable for on conviction of a penalty of not more than $500. so Yes, indeed. And, and probably that's not making it to the cruel and unusual uh, <laughs> level. <laughs> oh, if, you, no. if, you married, if you marry the drunken person, <laughs> you might be on the hook for 500 bucks. But <laughs> oh, all right, let, let's take our first break. Legally Speaking with Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers. We'll continue in just a moment on CFAX. Back to Legally Speaking on CFAX 1070, joined, as always, with Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers. The ongoing saga, Michael, about which you and I have spoken a few times now, of ICBC storing a number of vehicles damaged by acid. More than 500, <laughs> if my recollection is accurate. Yeah, that's exactly right. I, I think this, this case may represent the largest loss ever suffered by ICBC. Wow. Uh, and the, the fact pattern uh, involved... Uh, uh, spill of acid allegedly on two different occasions, about a month apart. Hard to know that how that quite uh, could have occurred. Um, and uh, essentially, there was acid produced by one company, sold to another company, transported by a third company, and allegedly not well uh, or sufficiently secured. The stuff splashed out or leaked out of the truck as it was being driven uh, near Trail in British Columbia. Uh, and hundreds of vehicles drove through the acid, uh, causing, well, one, what one might expect, damage. Yes. <laughs> uh, and the uh, ICBC uh, wrote off uh, in excess of 500 of those vehicles. Um, uh, and ICBC is now going about suing all manner of uh, people, uh, trying to recover uh, the massive amounts that it paid out for all of these acid-damaged vehicles. Yes. Uh, they're suing, like, the company that made the acid, the company that bought the acid, the company that transported the acid, uh, the two guys that drove the truck. Also, interestingly, ICBC is suing, this is a bit of a head-scratcher, mm -hmm. The province of British Columbia. Uh, <laughs> Aren't they owned by the province? Yes, indeed. Okay. So they, we, they appear to be uh, suing their own tail, as it were. So they're suing the province of British Columbia, claiming that the Ministry of Transportation didn't do enough to prevent this. They're, they're also suing uh, tr the city of Trail, claiming they didn't do enough. So they're, they're suing everyone in sight, trying to uh, recover um, for this loss. Um, interestingly, as we've talked about before, if we were in the time of no fault, if that proceeds, uh, none of this lawsuit would not occur. This would simply be, well, stuff happens, you know, acid leaks, <laughs> uh, ICBC would pay out and they would have no opportunity to recover anything from anyone. Um, it would be no fault, right? Oh, yes. well, cars got damaged, fix the cars, that would be the end of it. But we're not there at this point. Hmm. Uh, and... So the particular decision that just came out uh, arises over whether these vehicles should continue to be stored. 
Um, and it's not an insignificant expense. Uh, ICBC has, and it's a little unclear, it's being stored at a private lot, uh-huh. uh, and ICBC has so far paid $1.6 million in storage costs. Wow. And they're incurring an additional $54,734 per month to continue storing all of these acid-damaged vehicles uh, in this private lot. Um, and the reason they're being stored um, is that the companies uh, and people that ICB in the province, <laughs> for that matter, who ICBC are suing, uh, are claiming that, hey, they, they, these things uh, weren't damaged in the way that ICBC claimed, should not have been written off, uh, and we haven't had a chance to inspect them yet uh, in order to defend ourselves. Interesting. Um, and this is the description of what ICBC did to decide whether these vehicles were write-offs. Apparently, according to the judge, adjusters were instructed to, quote, write off any vehicle they found to have, quote, any visible sign of exposure, close quote, to sulfuric acid. Hmm. Uh, and so, um, you know, what is that? Is yeah, that any visible sign? Like, there's no any reasonable, there's no significant or substantial, it's any visible sign. Any visible sign of exposure. Wow. And it was to write them off. Huh. Uh, and they had uh, apparently uh, ICBC uh, people going around with some engineers using pH strips <laughs> to determine whether something might have acid on it. And if there was any visible, um, yeah, any visible wow. sign of exposure, uh, they would write the vehicle off. That's and very they, broad language, isn't it? It's really broad. And they claimed, well, you know, this could affect some safety system. Maybe it could be on the brake line. Hmm. But any visual exposure, right off. And so... All of these entities that are being sued for millions and millions of dollars from the, you know, guy that drove the truck to the province of British Columbia to the city of Trail to the company that bought, made, or transported the acid are all saying, well, hold on, that that doesn't seem right. Um, And moreover, there's been sort of a long and unfortunate history of them trying to get access to these vehicles to make their own assessment as to whether they should have been written off or not. Hmm. Um, uh, and that's been for a variety of reasons, including snow and logistics and all kinds of things, hasn't occurred. Um, and the case also uh, dealt with the concept of spoliation, which is an interesting thing. Um, spoliation would be the concept that, you know, if you're involved in litigation with somebody over a particular thing mm-hmm. and you intentionally destroy evidence relating to the case, mm-hmm. there can be an adverse inference drawn about what that evidence might have shown, yes. right? You know, if I'm claiming that, uh, you know, you did something fraudulent uh, and I take the very documents that I'm claiming were fraudulent and I burn them yes. <laughs> before the trial, well, you might not unreasonably think, maybe those didn't quite show what you were claiming, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, and so ICBC was saying, well, we shouldn't have to store these things. We should be allowed to destroy them. Uh, and um, you shouldn't draw some adverse inference by virtue of the fact that we've done that. Anyways, the judge had none of it <laughs> uh, and has ordered ICBC to keep storing the vehicles um, until next year, March of 2021, to allow time for them to be uh, inspected. And they were not. Pre- the judge was not prepared to say that ICBC would be relieved from the possible finding that they engaged in spoliation if they go and destroy the cars before the trial. Hmm, interesting. Um, also interestingly, as I read it, the other thing caused me to smile is one of the vehicles apparently has been, as described, inadvertently crushed. I'm <laughs> not quite <laughs> sure how that happened. But <laughs> whoops. But yeah, whoops, that might be a problem. 
so there it is. We've got uh, ongoing litigation, and ICBC is going to continue paying 50-something thousand dollars a month to keep storing these hundreds of vehicles uh, as they attempt to recover money from various people, including the province of British Columbia. Well, you know, got to keep the economy going somehow. Um, we have three minutes left if we want to touch on the ongoing matter involving Meng Wanzhou. Yeah, I think we can. Um, so that case involving the uh, extradition application is continuing to roll on. Um, and uh, one of the most recent uh, decisions on it dealt with the uh, um, application that she's making uh, for a stay of the extradition based on an allegation of there being an abusive process. Um, and the particular, case, the particular decision involved uh, whether that application should be allowed to proceed or not. Uh, the uh, government was arguing uh, that uh, it had no chance of success and shouldn't be allowed to go ahead. The judge analyzed all of what was being asked for and why and concluded that that application could in fact proceed. But the really interesting takeaway, I think, in reading the decision um, is the fact that we are so fortunate to live in a place where this kind of analysis goes on. Yes. You can read exactly why this decision is being made, what the evidence is, exactly what the argument uh, is, uh, is about. You've got an independent judge rejecting what the government was asking for, mm-hmm. and we're going to get a reasoned, transparent, open decision about it. Yes. Uh, and it is in just such stark contrast with, for example, what's going on in China. Yes. China, of course, took two Canadians essentially hostage. There's been no trial. There's been no reasons uh, like this, no independent uh, assessment of it. Uh, and just when you, each time I read one of the decisions or reports about how the extradition process is being handled in Canada, uh, it should make all of us just so very proud to live in a country where this is how we handle things, according to the rule of law, with an independent judge, with decisions that are available for anyone to look at and assess for themselves. Yes. And that is just not the norm. And this case just could not provide a clearer contrast between what happens to you when the government of China decides to just pick you up and put you in a jail cell and what happens in Canada. Uh, And so uh, I think that's really uh, the point of it. Uh, And it's just so uh, great to see that that's how we handle things. Uh, And it is just such sharp contrast with how you are treated in most parts of the world. Indeed, I had a a lawyer and Uyghur human rights advocate tell me once that in some areas of China, in the the camps where the Uyghur are being re-educated, they're actually arrested daily by algorithm. The police have a a computer printout, a list of names. They don't know why. They don't know what they did. They just, they're told to go pick them up, take them to the camp. A machine makes decisions like that. Very, very disturbing. So I'm glad we have the system we do. Yes, we are very fortunate. Michael Mulligan, legally speaking, every week here on CFAX 1070. Thank you for the benefit of your knowledge and insight as always, Michael. Until next week. Always a pleasure. Stay safe. Thank you so much. Bye now.